which is we're going to start studying the Megillat Esther from the beginning. Um, we have three weeks to be able to cover the story and the, also the mitzvot of Purim and to prepare ourselves for the holiday of Purim. So um, it's some, I do believe that in the past we've studied the story and we've, we've definitely learned the text of the story in the past, but it's been a while. So if you have a chumash or if you have a phone where you can go on Safaria and look up Megillat Esther, you can look it up online on any device on the computer that you are watching right now, you'd be able to... Uh, you'd be able to um, pull up Megillat Esther. In fact, I might be able to do it myself and even share my screen like I used to do. Let me see if I can do that. And then that will give us the opportunity to read the text together from the same place. Um, the, the, the goal will be, Bezrat Hashem, to really uh, study as much of the text as we can inside so that when we hear the reading of the Megillan poem, we understand what we're hearing and we understand the significance of what we're reading and we can uh, have a more uh, meaningful uh, connection to the, uh, to the experience of poem. So let me see if this screen share works. It's been a while since I did a screen share. I almost forgot how to do it because we, we used to do it in the... Uh, the beginning, and um, let's see, let's see if this works. Um, uh, let's see, I think it's working. Okay, ah, that looks right. So if you ha- if you can, you should be able to see. Um, okay, I see a thumbs up. So that I, hopefully that means everyone can see. This is from Safaria, which is a website that I like to use. I know there's other websites too that some people like more. This just happens to be the one that's easiest for me to uh, to manage because I'm, I've become used to it. In any case, this is the beginning of Megillat Tester. What we're going to do, Bezrat Hashem, is to study the story in a little more of the detail of the story to get to know it so that we can, um, uh, we, we can be uh, better... Celebrants of Purim with greater understanding. So, Vayib Yemei Achashverosh, it was in the days of Achashverosh. Hu Achashverosh, Hamolech Mo'odo V'yadkush, Sheva V'esrim O'Meyam Medina. So, Achashverosh ruled over 127 provinces. We know this. When did the story of Purim take place? So, just to put it in historical context for everyone, we know that the Jewish people entered the land of Israel under the leadership of Yehoshua, which was after the time of Moshe Rabbeinu. The Jewish people subsequently le- lived in the land for hundreds of years, built the first Bet HaMikdash. The first Bet HaMikdash was destroyed by the Babylonians. After that, the Jews went into exile, Babylonian exile, for 70 years. Eventually, the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians, and the Persians were much more benevolent rulers. The Babylonians had the philosophy that the way to unify the kingdom and subjugate their uh, new conquests, the people that they conquered, was to force them to adopt the religion of the Babylonians and the culture of the Babylonians. But the philosophy of the Persians was that the best way to win the loyalty of new subjects was to allow them to practice their religion freely. And therefore, Cyrus... Uh, who was the king at the time, allowed the Jews to return to Eretz Israel and to rebuild their Beit HaMikdash. And that, that created a very positive relationship, of course, between uh, the Jewish people and, um, and the Persian Empire. But during the times of Achashverosh, the, things were a little more tense. The Beit HaMikdash was, the second Beit HaMikdash, the, con, the uh, construction of it had been stalled. And uh, and there was a little bit more of a uh, of a feeling of uh, of conflict, I would say, but maybe not uh, totally uh, open conflict, but a little bit more strain on the relationship between the Jewish people and the Persian Empire at that time. In any case, this was in the days of Achashverosh, who's actually mentioned elsewhere in the Jew- in the Jewish Bible in the Tanakh. He's mentioned because it was during his time that the second temple's construction was halted. So uh, he ruled from Hoduve to Kush, which is from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces. During the days that he sat on the throne in Shushan, he made a gigantic party. Now, one of the things that we notice about the story of Purim, and this is something that it's not the first time it's been mentioned, and it's certainly something you have, uh, you know, that, that, you're, that all of us are aware of, that there's no open miracle in Purim, meaning to say there's no alteration of the laws of nature in Purim. There's no place that we even see the name of God explicitly referenced in the Megillah. The story of Purim would sound to someone who is reading it casually, just basically like a story of political intrigue in the court of Achashverosh. There's nothing that suggests in it anything divine. There's nothing obviously religious. There's nothing 
uh, supernatural, even hinted at any time uh, during the uh, during the story. And so one who reads the story would come away with the impression that this is really just a political story about the kingdom of Achashverosh and what happened and the leash of Achashverosh, what he did, what he didn't do, and so on. So, uh, and you know, how Mordechai and Esther maybe manipulated the uh, politics of Persia for the benefit of the Jews. That's what it sounds like on the surface. Uh, but I think that that's part of the key to understanding the message of Purim. The understanding, understanding the message of Purim is the how Hashem works through the political intrigue and manipulations of the human characters in the story of Purim. That's really the critical message that Hashem doesn't always reveal himself through open miracles. Hashem reveals himself through the wise decision-making and the, uh, and the courageous actions of the righteous people that are featured in the Megillah. And th- that is Hashem acting. He acts through them because they learned how to behave and how to think through the problem and how to approach it from their study of Hashem's Torah and Hashem's wisdom. And so that's Hashem's wisdom working through them to save the Jewish people. In any case, in the third year of his kingdom, he made a gigantic mishteh. Now, a mishteh is something uh, that comes from the word lishtot, to drink in Hebrew, which means, say, it was a drinking party. It was a party with a lot of wine flowing. And the goal of it, the, Torah, the, the Megillah says, and here you have in both Hebrew and English, I don't have to read to you every line, but basically it was to demonstrate, to make manifest to everybody the greatness and the power and the honor and the glory of Achashverosh. And it ran for 180 days. Shimonim umeat yom, 80 and 100. So 180 days of partying. Now this party was a party for VIPs only, as it says in verse 3, it was for Chel Parasumadai, the officials and it's for all the officials and the courtiers, it says, and the Chel Parasumadai, the army or the administrations of these, uh, the countries that were under the, uh, the uh, kingdom of all the nobles and the governors of the different provinces that he ruled. So he summoned them. So really, now what would seem to be uh, is not that Achashverosh actually uh, had a party where people were forced to stay for half a year in his palace, but that it was a kind of an open house ongoing party for 180 days where people from the different provinces would come in, stop in for a few days or a day, a few days, pay tribute to the king, party a little bit and go home. But this, was, this took half a year. And note that this was in the third year of his reign. And that's very significant because it suggests maybe, and I think a lot of the commentaries pick up on this, modern and ancient commentaries pick up on this. And also the, the Talmud. The Talmud has a very lengthy exposition and discussion of Megillat Esther where it goes through every single pasuk basically and explains it and expounds upon it. There is a sense that the first three years, perhaps, or the first two years, at least, of the reign of Achashverosh were not such stable times in Persia. There was a lot of conflict. There was a lot of, there, there was instability. And therefore, because of that instability, um, Achashverosh actually was, uh, you know, wasn't in a position to have a party of the kind that, uh, that, he was, that he, you know, that he's now having in the third year of his reign. So, the um, so the the fact that he's now having this party suggests that uh, that it, whatever the issues were that were holding him back have come to a conclusion have now been resolved and he's able now to invite everybody to this celebration of the establishment of his kingdom that his kingdom is now stable and uh, and he wants to demonstrate to everybody how powerful successful impressive he really is so they remain committed to him. And they remain uh, close to him. So it is a celebration of some sort, a celebration perhaps of the final achievement of a certain stability and unity in the kingdom. It's also a way of impressing upon them his greatness and power so that they will remain subservient to him and will desire to continue their relationship with him. So that's the first 180 days. And then at the conclusion of the 180, you have another, Asa Melech Lecholam the uh, the king made for after the six month party, 
he made a party for only the people in Shushana Birah. Shushana Birah is the capital city, the Migadol Viad Katan, from great to small. So whereas the first party was only for the nobles, it was only for the VIPs, it was only for the people who were in government, this party was for everybody who lived in the capital city, great or small, didn't matter. That was only a seven-day party in the palace garden. Okay, the court of the king's palace garden, it says here. So the idea is that this party was a shorter party, obviously. It wasn't six months long. It was only seven days long. It was for the people who lived in the, um, in the, the vicinity of the palace because it was the people who lived in the capital city. So it would be like if the president had a party where he invited all of the governors and the administrations of the various governors of the states of the 50 states, and he had a party like that, and that would be to kind of consolidate his relationship with all of the different leaders that were supposed to be working under his, uh, you know, under his uh, uh, administration or, you know, under his uh, supervision. And then if he made a party just for the residents of Washington, D.C. to come, in other words, his home base to celebrate, and that would not just be the administration or the governors or the nobles, that would be everyone who lived in that neighborhood joining in the party. So seemingly, there's a strong desire from Ahasuerus to demonstrate the now uh, stable character of his his government, and to also convey to everyone how wealthy he is and how fancy everything is, as we see in the descriptions in verse 6 and 7 and 8, there is a, uh, there is a desire to convey opulence, wealth. Um, there's all kinds of different fabrics and fancy stonework and gold and silver. And of course, wine was served in great abundance to everyone in fancy golden goblets and other kinds of fine, uh, uh, fine, uh, you know, uh, dishes and and uh, and and uh, of different material made of different materials. shonim, all kinds of different specially designed cups, and it went according to the rule. en ones. Now, the way that they translated in the English here is en ones means there were no restrictions. Okay. But uh, meaning nobody would be forced to stop. But many interpret it the other way, that it means nobody would be forced to drink. But either way, the idea was that he was catering. The king wanted everyone's wishes to be catered to. That was the objective. So it says, The people who were in charge of the party were told that they should fulfill the desire of every person. Now, what is the reason to fulfill the desire of every person? To give everyone the feeling of being important, to give everybody the feeling that they were a part of something really significant, which was the kingdom of Achashverosh. Because that sense of being a part of this uh, monumental institution of the kingdom of Achashverosh would create a sense of loyalty and commitment and uh, subjection among the citizens of the Persian Empire, which was, of course, the objective of Achashverosh. So there is a certain insecurity, I would say, you could, you could say, that is um, maybe uh, hidden beneath the surface here. In other words, for all of this partying and for all of this celebration and for all the free-flowing wine and the fancy goblets and the expensive jewels and the, um, and, you know, the, the, the gold and the silver, all of this enormous effort of over half of a year of partying in a way seems to my mind to cover up a measure of insecurity of Ahasuerus. In other words, as they say, the lady doth protest too much. There's a sense that, yes, you are trying to demonstrate your power and how impressive you are, but the very fact that you're trying so hard to impress everybody suggests that you feel that you need to impress them, that otherwise they won't regard you as anybody so great and they won't take your kingdom and your, uh, your administration so seriously, and maybe they will not work together with you or under your thumb, in the case of uh, Ahasuerus, the, um, the way that they should. So uh, this big party, as much as we know it's a setup for what's going to happen to Vashti in just a moment, is psychologically very significant because it's not all, it tells us that it's very important to Ahasuerus to send a certain image and message 
to the noblemen and the governors of the various provinces, as well as to his own citizens. And the question that we wonder about is, to what extent is this smoke and mirrors? To what extent is this an artificial, a fake image that he's projecting? And to what extent is it uh, a genuine image? And that is that very question, I think, is really um, addressed in the uh, in in we can see uh, we can get an inkling of what the real answer to that question is in the upcoming uh, upcoming developments here. Uh, but I think that if you if you note that trying so hard to impress people, we don't generally think of it that way. But the fact that he made such a uh, an enormous party, qualitatively and quantitatively, and every by every measure, an enormous party uh, with the intent of impressing people. At first, we think of wow, that is pretty impressive. But then you wonder why does he have to invest so much time and energy in impressing people? We don't hear of such a thing in any other case. So that's something to bear in mind. Then it says also Vashtia Malka made a party uh, in uh, for the for the women, and uh, and it, it, here you see that if you look at the text here, it has a samech. That samech signifies a new paragraph in the Megillah. It's a new paragraph, but it really should be before verse nine because verse nine is the beginning of the new paragraph. So this was the very last day of the party, the final day of the seven-day party. And the king had had a good amount to drink because I guess it was the grand finale. So everybody was living it up on that last day. And he said, He had his seven eunuchs, his seven servants, attendants, and, and he said to them to bring Vashtia Malka in the, uh, in the royal crown. He wanted to show the people and the noblemen her beauty because she was very beautiful. Now the interesting thing, of course, is, of course, the Midrashim have all kinds of interpretations that he said he wanted her to come unclothed, only wearing the, the, the uh, Keter, only wearing the royal, the crown, but that is not the simple reading of the text. The simple reading of the text is that he just wanted her to parade herself in front of everyone uh, as an object for them to gaze upon and another way to demonstrate uh, how great he was. In other words, the purpose was for them to see how beautiful his wife was because that reflected on him just like the beautiful jewelry and all of the other fancy things that he was showing off. He wanted to show off his wife. But the, the, the queen refused to come. And of course, the, uh, the king becomes very angry about this and doesn't know what to do. Now, the, he's, he's just boiling with anger. Now, the question, of course, that the Gemara asks, that the commentaries are puzzled about, is why Vashti doesn't want to go, since Vashti is not such a righteous, uh, exemplary character either. So why doesn't she want to join the party of Ahasuerus? And so the Gemara gives all kinds of ideas that perhaps the Midrashim say, perhaps, you know, she was having, they say she grew a tail or she had, you know, spots on her face. The idea of all of these Midrashim is that she just wasn't feeling beautiful. She was feeling, she was having, as we call it today, a bad hair day. She didn't want to go and uh, appear in front of the crowd because she wasn't feeling attractive that day. Just like sometimes people have days that they're just not feeling that they look their best. She didn't want to go. Um, another possibility is that she just felt uncomfortable in the environment because basically it's asking a queen who's supposed to be someone regal and supposed to be somebody important to be paraded in front of a bunch of drunk men as an object um, in order to bring honor to the king that possesses her. I mean, in, in a way, it's a, a degrading, it's, it degrades her kavod. It's a lowering of the honor of the queen to have her paraded in that way in front of a drunken mob, basically. And she didn't want to be subjected to that. She didn't want to be lowered in that way. It did not seem to her to be regal. It's maybe a little bit, it reminds me, it's not a perfect analogy at all. It's not even, you know, I, I wouldn't compare the two characters in any other way, but David Melech. When he's dancing in front of the Aaron, when they brought the Aaron to Yerushalayim, and he was dancing in front of the Aaron, his wife Michal was very upset that he had lowered himself in the eyes of the people by dancing in such a crazy manner in front of the Aaron. Show, he wanted to show his joy in serving Hashem and how he was so, you know, he didn't care for himself. He only cared for the honor of God. But she felt that he was lowering the dignity of the office of king 
by acting in such a way in front of the people. The Havdil, to, you know, and, and actually Michal was criticized for that, for saying that he should hold his honor uh, up above the honor of God and show some restraint in his celebration when the Aaron was brought to Jerusalem. But uh, that leaving that story, the details of that story obviously are very different, but the fact that, that Vashti does not want to come in front of the drunken group of men might be for the same reason. She doesn't want to lower her status as a queen. That's not something that you do with a queen, have her parade in front of people as an object to show her off because in some way it makes you seem like a cooler guy that you have a beautiful wife. That's a very uh, degrading thing and she didn't want to participate. And of course the king gets very angry about this turn of events. Now, why would he get so angry? Does he just get angry because his wife doesn't want to come to the party? Does he get angry because obviously his servants that he sent to summon her are aware of the fact that she refused to come and maybe now he feels that you know his authority is being undermined? Whatever the case may be, it doesn't seem to be only, obviously it's fueled a little bit by the liquor here, but, uh, and the fact that he's, uh, the alcohol is, 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 you know, playing a role. But the fact that he is so upset also might point us back to one of the issues that we raised in the opening scene. The opening scene of the party, yes, is very regal and very impressive and shows great opulence and wealth and, and, and honor. But it also suggests a certain insecurity on the part of that he needs to prove himself, that he needs to impress people with how great he is. And that makes me wonder uh, whether the reason why this was such a hot issue for him, the reason why this was such a sensitive issue, uh, Vashti's refusal to come to the party, is maybe because it is exposing that insecurity. It is making him seem not as impressive because his wife contradicts him and doesn't come when he summons her. That would seem to undermine, would seem to uh, call into question this image, this powerful image he is trying to convey to everybody that he's so desperate to convey to everybody uh, and, and in order to impress them is being uh, tarnished by the refusal of his own wife to come to the party when he commands her to do so. And so if we think about it that way, that this is somebody who's already on the edge, this is somebody who already feels desperate to prove themselves and how great they are and how powerful they are, how impressive they are. And lo and behold, on a very basic issue, on the very last day of the party, when he's leaving the last impression with the people who have been at the party and he needs to make sure that it goes out with a bang and everything ends in a perfect way, what happens? Something fails. Major fail of... Uh, of uh, Vashti not wanting to come to the party. And that uh, will, uh, has the potential to undermine everything that's been accomplished in the entire 187 preceding dates. So uh, the, if we put it in perspective that way, we can better understand why he gets so upset about this and he doesn't know what to do. So he said to the, to the wise men who were knowledgeable about times, itim are times, meaning to say, they are those who know about history, they know about the precedent of what to do in different situations in the past. This is what the king would do. He would always turn to the people who knew what the laws and the customs were of the kingdom when he had a dilemma. And the closest people were, these seven nobles of Paras and Madai who saw the face of the king, meaning they were in the inner circle, they were in his cabinet. They faced him directly, they were closest to him. He wanted to determine what the law was that should be done to Vashti for not following the instruction of Achashosh. Now this becomes an enormous question. Normally you have a, a dispute or a disagreement. The king asked the, his wife to do something. She said, no, okay, she can't make it. It's no big deal. But when you see what the stakes are here, that the whole point was to show this image of this incredible, powerful, impressive leader and his own wife is refusing to come. Now we understand why it's such a desperate situation. Memuchan says, and we'll get back to in a minute that the Midrash tells us that Memuchan is actually Haman. Was another name for Haman. We're going to come back to that. But right now, Memuchan says, Lo ala melech Vashti 
כי על כל השרים ועל כל העמים אשר בכל מדינות המלך אחשוורוש. But it was against all of the nobles and all of the people who are in the kingdom of Achashverosh that she has sinned against. Now this is very interesting because let's try to understand the dilemma of Achashverosh right now. If he, if he responds in an over, in, 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 you know, he over responds he, he's, and he, he reacts in an overly harsh way, then he might be perceived also as weak. And not able to handle the frustration of the situation with his wife. He'll also be perceived as what? You can't take the fact that she said she didn't want to come. You get so angry. You know, uh, that's pathetic. He might come across as pathetic. On the other hand, if he does nothing, people will say, well, if Vashti doesn't listen to her own husband, who's the king? Why should we listen to her husband either? Maybe he's not that big of a deal. He's not so powerful. He's not so impressive because his own wife doesn't listen to him. So on one hand, he has to worry about not reacting at all. And the implication of not reacting at all would be that people would get the sense that he wasn't really in control. On the other hand, if he reacts too much, it sounds also like he's not in control. So what does he do? He refers it to the law. He turns to the Chachamim. Because when you deal with Chachamim who are objective, it's clearly not coming from his own personal feelings, his own control or lack of control. No, I'm deferring to the law. Whatever the law is, is what I'm going to do. So that attitude actually gets him off the hook. And it says that was what he would do all the time in situations like this. He didn't want things to reflect on him. He wanted them to, be, to come from a separate authority. He wanted them to have a sense of authority independent of him. So what happens? Memuchan says, this is not just an issue for you, king, which is exactly, of course, what Ahasuerus wants to hear. It's not about me. Good. So it's not about the fact that I either do or don't have control over my own household, right? No, no, no. This is about Vashti and the implications of what she did for the entire kingdom. Because what's going to happen is, because the word of the queen is going to go out, To all the women in the kingdom who are now going to look down on their husbands. Because they're going to say that, it, look, King Ahasuerus told his wife to come and she didn't come. Not only are the average people no longer going to respect the women are no longer going to respect their husbands because they see that even the queen doesn't respect the king. Then, and all, not only that, but the wives of the officers, Afaras and Madai, are going to, there's going to be a lot of degrading and, and, and denigration and anger and, and conflict in the marriages of these people because the wives are going to no longer obey the will of the husband. There's going to be domestic disputes. There's going to be lack of shalom bayit, etc. So what does Memuchan do? Memuchan takes an issue which really could have been just a personal issue between Ahasuerus and Vashti and he turns it into a matter of principle. He turns it into a matter of law, a, a concern beyond the king. That takes the pressure off of the king because it's no longer a matter of whether he's in control or not. It's no, matter, it's no longer a matter of whether he is insecure or secure in his power or impressive or not impressive. It's about what does the law dictate should be done in such a situation. Not for my sake, but for the sake of the kingdom. And what's the answer? First of all, a decree should go out and it should be written in all of the laws of Persia and Madai and never be canceled. That Vashti shall never again enter the presence of Ahasuerus and her kingdom, her, her title, should be bestowed upon somebody who is more worthy than she is. Okay, who's better than her. In other words, number one, we can't let what she did go without punishment, without consequence. Now notice that the Megillah never says that he actually killed her. Um, many people assume that he did, but it never actually says that. It just says that she's no longer allowed to come before the king and she loses her royal title. So losing the ro- that's the punishment of Vashti to, to communicate the idea that it's unacceptable not to obey the word of the king. And similarly, that 
a that in a the the implication also that he's drawing from it is that wives should listen to their husbands, and that Vashti is going to be made an example that even the queen has to listen to the king. So look, what I'm doing is not to protect you, Achashverosh. It's not that your ego is bruised. It's not that you need to be validated. It's not that you're feeling insecure today. It's just that this is a matter of principle. Now think about how much better that feels than saying that, you know, because of your insecurity and your vulnerability, we'd better punish Vashti really fast. No, it's a matter of principle. Okay, not only that, and once this judgment is heard throughout the kingdom, which is a very great one, even though the realm is very great of the king, once it sp- spreads out to all these places, all women will start respecting their husbands, whether great or small. Because they'll hear about what happened to Vashti. Even a queen who disrespects her husband loses her title and is banished. Certainly an average woman, the same. By the way, one of the things that I always point out about, about Megillat Esther is that Achashverosh never hears a piece of advice he doesn't like. Whenever somebody advises Achashverosh, it always says, The king liked it. Now the king liked it and so did the officers and he did what Memuchan said, Books were sent, in other words, communications were sent to all of the provinces of Achashverosh, in the writing of that province, and whatever nation, different dialects and languages it was translated into them, that every man should be the leader of his house, and should speak the language of his people. Now what exactly the speaking of the language of his people means and why that's related to this discussion of uh, women respecting their husbands. Well, if you interpret it, that it means that a wife should speak the language of her husband, which is the way that some commentaries do interpret it, that, that would, then it would fit in with the idea of the wife respecting the husband. But it doesn't really seem to be that way because there's umdabir in the male form, that every man should speak the language of his people. And uh, th- that could either mean that every man should speak uh, you know that that every that every man should speak the um, the language of his people, meaning the language of uh, their particular province, that they should be proficient in that language. In other words, it was in a way emphasizing this general Persian approach of. Uh, empowering people in the, the cultures that they conquered. They wanted them to continue with their culture and with their language, with their religion. And so it's a part of that idea that he's trying to emphasize that he wants the people to feel empowered, that he wants every group to uh, speak its own language and every man to be the king of his own household and, uh, and not for everyone to be subjugated to a one language or one culture or one uh, you know, system uh, or uh, of doing things. So th- that's what it seems to be. That seems to be the simplest reading. You could also twist it and say that it means that everybody should speak Persian, uh, because that, meaning that everyone should speak the language of the Persian Empire, which would be uh, um, a- another way of Ahasuerus trying to show um, dominance over the people, that everyone should speak the language of Ammo, meaning the people, the Persian people that they were, they were part of. But it's harder to read that into the text. I think that the simple meaning is that it's an empowerment of the, of each group that he's sending the message to, that they should speak their own language and that every man should be the ruler of his home. Now, the Gemara actually mocks this and, uh, the Talmud says that this was a silly law that Achashverosh actually ruined his authority by sending out this uh, communication to everyone because it was seen as silly. We, giving a command that every man should be the ruler of his house, first of all, sounds very insecure. Sounds very, uh, you know, uh, immature to send that as a type of a law. And, uh, and, that they didn't, and, and from then on, they actually didn't take Achashverosh seriously. So it actually ruined his standing in the eyes of the people, according to the Talmud. But what I think is really key here is that we, we get a sense of the kind of person Achashverosh is. He's an insecure person. He's a person who has to in, impress other people. When his authority is challenged, he doesn't want to respond in a way that reveals his own insecurity or reveals his own vulnerability or weakness, either by getting overly angry or by being overly passive. He doesn't want to be walked 
all over and he doesn't want to respond emotionally. So he turns to advisors all the time. He depends very heavily upon his advisors out of that same insecurity and feeling of vulnerability and desire to hide that. So he's always turning to, uh, to others. And what Mimuchan does, which really is creative and is, uh, is very smart, is he takes the problem with Vashti out of the domestic realm, out of the realm of a conflict between husband and wife, and into a social issue for the kingdom. This is really for the sake of Persia to make sure that households remain intact and functional and there's shalom bayit, etc. We cannot allow this kind of behavior from the queen because it will be a bad example. And so according to that, banishing her and then letting everyone know she's been banished and that everyone and that every man should be the ruler of his household makes her into an example and a, uh, uh, for a learning experience for everyone and diminishes the amount that it looks bad for the king. Because it doesn't say the king was upset. It doesn't say in the, the, in the communication to the people that the king was upset or that the king was disrespected or denigrated. It just says that she didn't follow his rules. She didn't follow uh, what she was ordered to do. So therefore she was banished. And that should be a lesson to everyone that they should be, be obeying their husband. That's the, uh, that's the message that Mimucham wanted to send. Not anything about the emotional turmoil that it put the king into or the conflict it, that the king experienced as a result. So by Mimucham taking it and making it into a general issue instead of allowing it to be the domestic dispute that it really was, he takes the pressure off of Achashverosh and he, um, he also you know, is able to resolve the situation in a way that uh, does not expose Achashverosh to ridicule directly or reveal his insecurities because it makes it a matter of principle. Um, and we're going to see that this, the reason why, I, w- I, I would suggest, the reason why the rabbis um, believe that Memuchan was Haman, and the Talmud always says Memuchan ze Haman, is that he is really the same person. Because if you look at what, what Haman is going to do later when he has a personal conflict with Mordechai, but it feels embarrassing and it feels, uh, he feels, you know, ashamed to admit that it's a personal slight that has driven him to anger against Mordechai because really the fact that Mordechai can even upset him should be an embarrassment to him. So what does he say? He says, no, it's not about me and Mordechai. It's about the Jewish people. The Jewish people are bad for the kingdom. The Jewish people don't follow the rules of the kingdom. The Jewish people should be eliminated. And that, he said, it wasn't about me, not about me, not about me and Mordechai. It's about the kingdom and making sure that everyone within our kingdom is following the rules of the kingdom. So he, he takes a personal conflict and he, in order to hide his insecurities and in order to hide his own deficiencies, he makes it into an issue of public policy for everyone to take the focus off of himself. Just like Memuchan is doing here by making the issue of Vashti a public policy issue. And so because the rabbis noticed the similar methodology in uh, in Memuchan um, and Haman, they linked the two characters together and said they really must be the same person with, under two different names. Now, but what certainly is true, uh, what certainly is true is that whether we take that interpretation literally that Memuchan is Haman or not, they're pointing out a similarity in the way of thinking of Memuchan and Haman by saying that they're the same person. Whether that's a literal identification of the two people are really one, or it's just pointing us to the notion, pointing us to the pattern that there that is, uh, you know, of argument, of argument, and of uh, of uh, resolution of dilemma that they use. That in both cases they take a personal conflict and make it into a print, a matter of principle. Either way, they're connecting the two characters in some in, in some manner. Uh, base, and I would say it's because of this content. It's because of the way that Memuchan thinks and the way that Haman thinks. But there's another possibility um, that it's not a literal identification, but that really one of the themes of the Megillah is that uh, is the way in which the people operating in the uh, in the story are very preoccupied with hiding their own vulnerabilities and insecurities. Because what ends up happening is that Esther, in her plan to save the Jews, capitalizes on these very insecurities that she notices everyone is so busy trying to hide. That this image of greatness and power and control and being above the, the slights that are directed at, uh, you know, at us and all of that, because it's all fake, it's all, you know, it's all uh, only on the surface, that's exactly what Esther is, is able to exploit 
in order to manipulate Achashverosh and Haman and to bring them into conflict with one another, which he manages to do. So this theme of characters who are actually weak characters trying to uh, project an image of being great and being powerful, being strong, is exactly what Esther uses to her advantage later in the story. So whether uh, Haman and Memuchan are literally the same person or just two people that use the same approach to resolving problems, making a personal issue into a principle so it's not embarrassing to them and it doesn't reveal their insecurities, either way, that's definitely a theme of the Megillah. And now, after this situation with Vashti, we'll go just a little bit further. We're not going to go all the way through the beauty pageant. We won't have time tonight. But I think we'll have time to finish the majority of the Megillah uh, over the next two, two sessions. Eventually, Achashverosh remembered Vashti and everything that had happened. In other words, he had cooled off already. And, and the uh, men of the king, the Narea Melech, said to him, his servant said, why don't we take, why don't we find we should find beautiful young women for you and we can set up guards, officers to assemble all the women and every beautiful woman will be taken to Shoshana Bura to the house of the women and will be under the supervision of Hege who was the eunuch of the king and they will be given all the cosmetics they need and whichever girl you like you can keep her as a wife in place of Vashti so the king again says, Once again, the king finds the advice offered to him to be wonderful, which he always does, and he follows it. So he was just languishing in his own sadness, in his own not really knowing what to do, not knowing how to proceed, remembering Vashti, feeling lonely, feeling at a loss. He didn't know, how to, you know what to do about his problem. And other people come along and give him a suggestion. And of course, once he can grasp onto a suggestion... He's, he's willing to follow through with it and they have this beauty pageant. The Gemara says, Talmud comments that this is a sign of the foolishness of Achashverosh and his administration that they gather every beautiful woman because if you know that every beautiful young woman is going to be gathered to the palace of the king but out of all of those beautiful young women only one of them will become the queen and the rest will be concubines of Achashverosh forever would you want your daughter or would you want yourself to be in that kind of a beauty pageant? Obviously not because Chances are you're not going to be the winner. If we look at it as like a lottery, if, if 10,000 women are gathered, only one is going to win. So you have a pretty strong chance of not winning and, uh, and, and then being a concubine imprisoned in the, in the harem of the, uh, of the king forever. And if you're the one in 10,000, maybe you'll end up being the queen. Most people would try to avoid being a, context, a contest like that with the, where the odds were so bad. On the other hand, on the other hand, David Melech, when he was looking for a, a female companion in his old age, it says they didn't go and a- gather every single young woman and then force them to participate in a beauty pageant. What they did was they had a search. They conducted a search for one woman and one woman only. And so there everybody wanted to, their daughter or themselves to be considered for that, pos- for that position because they knew that there was only one person going to be chosen and everybody else had nothing to lose participating in, uh, the, in a contest, so to speak, like that. So uh, the fact that Achashrosh gathers everyone up was, was you know, uh, a... Um, of course, it's necessary for the story because otherwise Esther wouldn't have participated in such a thing. But it's something that reflects the way of thinking of his administration, which was not always so smart. Um, in any case, he has this beauty pageant and all these women come. And, uh, and, and we're now introduced to Ish Yehudi We're introduced to Mordechai, who was part of the exile that had come uh, of the Babylonian exile. It doesn't necessarily mean that he himself was exiled from, from Israel to Babylonia because that would have made him very, very old at this time. But it means that he came from those who were exiled. And Vahi Omenet Hadassah, he had a, uh, he took care of Hadassah, who is called Esther, who was his, not his niece, like everybody says. He, Esther, bat dodo. She was the daughter of his uncle, which means she was his cousin, not his, uh, not his niece, like many people mistakenly say. Because she had no father or mother. And when her, when her parents died and she was orphaned, Mordechai adopted her as his own 
uh, daughter and raised her. So uh, it happened that when all of the girls were gathered together, since Esther was very beautiful, she was gathered as well. And she found favor in the eyes of Hegai, who was the man who ran the uh, harem where the women were kept. And so he made, a, because she was such a pleasant and charming woman, so he made sure to furnish her with everything extra and, uh, and he put her into, the, uh, into a better, uh, a better um, uh, she had the best accommodations and she had the best cosmetics and the best food. And she never told who she was. She never told that she was Jewish because Mordechai had told her, don't tell. You never know when you might be, uh, when that factor might become significant. So don't tell. And every day Mordechai would walk in front of the palace of the king to see how Esther was doing and what would be done. Now each woman would come and have their turn uh, in the beauty pageant. And really the beauty pageant wasn't really a beauty pageant. It was more uh, involved in that and intimate than that. It was spending a night with the king basically. And then he was going to decide which woman he wanted to keep. So it was a lot more intimate and involved than a date. But uh, each girl would come after six months in one treatment and six months in another. In other words, it would spend 12 months. They were spending a year preparing themselves and their bodies for this encounter of one night. And they would be allowed whatever they wanted on their date with the king. Meaning, I guess, whatever music they wanted, whatever food they wanted, whatever clothing they wanted. Whatever they requested was given to them for this one night of the king, uh, with the king after a year of preparation, and then they would have to see whether they won the contest or not. In the evening she would go, and in the morning she would come back to wait and see whether she was chosen or not. She would never come back to see the king again unless she was called. But when the turn of Esther came, it says she didn't ask for anything. All of the girls who went to see Ahasuerus made requests to make the dream date with the king, but Esther didn't ask for anything. She just went with whatever Hegai told her. Hegai was the supervisor of the, women, the women's quarters of the king. And Esther found favor in the eyes of everybody. And so Esther was taken to the house of Achashverosh in the month of Tevet, which is actually just last month. By then it was already the seventh year of his reign. Now that means, remember the end of the party, the party of 180 days or 187 days was back in the third year of his reign. So this is already four years later that this is happening. And it's in the month of Tevet. The Gemara comments, the Talmud comments, that the month of Tevet is the winter time when it's cold and when companionship and physical closeness is most appreciated. So it made her more desirable for that reason as well. And the king ended up loving her more than anyone. And he ended up uh, crowning her queen in place of Ashti. And he made a big party. Vayas Melech Gadol's favorite thing to do. He made a big Mishteh, big banquet. And he canceled taxes, maybe for that month or something, I don't know for how long. And gifts were given out uh, from the king. And every, all the girls who had originally been in the contest gathered together for a party, for the coronation party of Esther. And meanwhile, Esther never revealed her ethnic origin or her religion, like Mordechai said. And uh, she continued following the instructions of Mordechai throughout her ordeal. Now, one of the interesting things to note about this contest is the fact that the Megillah points out that Esther didn't ask for anything. She went with whatever Hegai told her to bring to the date. Whereas all the other women or young, or young women requested things, whatever, whatever they wanted, they were given for their time with the king. So what do you see there? You see already great insight and intelligence in Esther that causes her to stand out. Because everyone else is wondering, what would I want for my ideal night with the king. What would the ideal um, circumstance be for me? What kind of food would I want? What kind of music? What kind of environment? What kind of setting? Whatever it was that they would ask for, they would get. So it was about creating a dream. But what kind of dream would the girls create? Their own dream of, a, of an evening with the king, hoping that that would be what would lead to them being chosen as queen. Whereas Esther realized that was a mistake. That would be projecting her own fantasy about what an ideal date would be uh, instead of trying to figure out what the king's ideal date would be. And of course, if, it's, if the king thinks it's ideal that he's going to choose her, not the other way around. So in order to get the king to like her, she has to figure out what he would want and create a, a date that matches what he would 
uh, what would meet with his approval. And that's why she consulted with Hegai, and Hegai was the one who told her what she should request, or, or who gave her whatever she would need, so that it would be exactly what the king would really want. And it's like I've said before, in our shiurim before, that when you, were, when you apply for a job, you don't tell the employer why you want the job. You tell the, the employer why they should want you to work for them. Because they're not interested in why you want the job. They're interested in whether you would be a benefit to them. So in the same way, you need to convey, Estelle realizes she needs to have a, um, uh, an, she has to con- con- create an experience with the king that conveys to him that he will have from her what he wants. Not that she will get out of the experience what she wants, because that will do her no good. What will do good is if he, desi- if he sees his dreams coming true in the experience he has with Esther. And that's why she consults with a guy who would know the best. So from the very beginning, and she's also list- she's keeping her identity a secret. She's keeping herself a little bit of a mystery. She's keeping her, you know, the truth of her truth about her identity close to her. And she's also following the instructions and the wisdom and advice of Mordechai. So we see Esther is already positioned. She's already the kind of person who's going to be able to understand the motivations and the psychological makeup and the political complexities of court life. And, uh, and th- that's exactly how she's going to end up uh, saving the Jewish people from the clutches of Haman, as we're going to see in the, uh, the upcoming story. But the main point here is that she, w- she found favor in the eyes of the people because she didn't try to project an image of her own that was a, a crafted image. Rather, she was the type of person that, uh, that other people would see in her what they wanted to see. Um, because she, and, and that's the, uh, that was the gift that Esther had to not impose uh, upon others the, uh, you know, a certain image that whether they would like it or not, and it was some people would be attracted to it, some people would be turned off by it, but to allow, to be the kind of person who was generally seen um, the, whose positive qualities would be seen by every person through their own lens, from their own unique perspective. And so that's why it says that actually the, the Midrash says that every nation thought she belonged to them. Oh yeah, she's definitely from our nation. And they would all argue and say, no, she's from us. She's one of us. She's one of us. Everybody wanted her for their own, to claim her for their own because they were able to see in her some good um, because she didn't project an image but rather she was a screen onto which other people projected their images. And that's what it says she found favor in the eyes of everybody. Most people can't find the favor, favor in the eyes of everybody because there's at least something about them that won't be compatible with, uh, with, with everybody. But when you're a person who doesn't attempt to, uh, uh, to make a statement of some sort uh, and, and to project an image out to the world, then other people will see in you what they want to see. And that was strategic for Esther. It wasn't that she was a fake person, but it was strategic for her not to show too much of who she really was because that allowed others to create in their mind the image of who she was. And that was why she was able to win the favor of the people and to win the contest as well. So Bezrat Hashem, next week we will continue with the story. I hope everyone will join uh, for the continuation and we'll do our best to finish the entire story in uh, the next two weeks so that we uh, cover it all and have a good understanding of it before we reach Purim.